more out of it than I ever have before. It was just, it was really, really good for me. And I say we finished it up. Actually, there's a few chapters, like four or five chapters I passed over, and I'm going to come back to that later. Uh, but what we wanted to do is we wanted to kick off a brand new series today, uh, next week being Mother's Day, and between uh, from today all the way up to Father's Day, we wanted to do this series of um, about family and uh, building stronger homes. And this is a series that we want to speak to every year. I, I love uh, going through books of the Bible. I think that's how you really grasp uh, the teaching of the Scripture. But also believe from time to time we need to do series like this, more of a topical type of a series. We talk about really important topics and what the Bible says to that. And I believe family is so important in our world today. It is huge. Uh, and it's just so important that we address this every year. The challenge is, and this is the really hard part of doing a topical series, is that, that uh, it's, it's just a lot more work. It's a lot more work on my part. And one of the things that we have to be careful of, I have to be careful of as a pastor, but all of us as pastors have to be careful of anytime we're doing topical preaching, is we have to be careful about making our points and then finding a Bible verse that says what we want it to say. And what we've got to do is we've got to always go to the Scriptures and look at what the Scriptures tell us and then help us uh, take that and come back to whatever those things are. So we're going to be uh, kicking off this series today. And uh, what I want to do is, uh, speaking of family, hey, speaking of family, this is really cool. Rudy Dolly, did y'all celebrate your 40th anniversary this last week? Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? I mean, that, that to me is spectacular because I feel like, uh, you know, 40 years, I mean, 40 years into anything, especially with Rudy, I mean, that is something to celebrate. I'm just kidding. I love you, Rudy. That's why I pick on you, okay? But uh, actually, uh, Rudy is, uh, he, he's a great guy. I really love Rudy. I love Dolly as well. But I just, I think that uh, that is worth celebrating. Um, and so I, I love that. Um, so, and also speaking of family, my wife is home. She was gone for a week. She was gone for a week. I cooked, I cooked three times. I cooked three times, and I did not catch anything on fire. All right? I didn't catch anything on fire. So, uh, we made it, we made it. So, uh, but I'm so glad she's home. Uh, so, what I want you to do is, we haven't done this for a while, and if you are... Uh, newer to our church, this may be a little stretch for you, but I'm going to ask you to do this, please. And this is just something we do from time to time. I, I think it's really good for us to, uh, you know, in preaching, in worship, you know, what we want to do is we want to be people who lean forward, okay? Like, you know, this is what I'm going to say to you. If you want forward momentum in your life, it's hard to get forward momentum without leaning forward. Did you know that? Yeah. It really is. I don't know if any of you have ever run track or anything like that, but you never see a guy win a race leaning backwards. All right? It just doesn't happen. It may be comfortable in a recliner, but it just doesn't work if you're running a race. And we want to be a people. We are running a race. We are running a race following Jesus, and we are leaning into worship, and we are, because our God is a God who deserves our worship, and we want to lean into what the scriptures say. But the way I want us to, to kick off leaning in today, I'd like you to turn to a couple of people around you, okay? Maybe the people on either side of you. It might be, you, you, can, you can be in a group of two or a group of, of 
of 20, I don't care, but just kind of turn around to a couple of people around you, and I want you to answer a question among each other. This is the question. This is the question. What is the mission of the family? What's the mission of the family? There you go. All right, all right. So I want to hear from different ones of you. I want to hear, just a second though, I want to hear from different ones of you about the mission of the family. First of all, it was brought to my attention, it was brought to my attention that Chuck and Terry have been married for 45 years today. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? That is great. They were like 11 years old when they got married. So, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, we celebrate with you and for you. So anybody else married this week? Anybody else celebrate the anniversary? You guys? Today? How many years? Seven. Fantastic. Fantastic. Praise God. Praise God. That is great. That's great. Carmine and Belinda are today as well? Uh, they're in Hawaii. All right. They're in paradise. They're in paradise. Yeah, Joy and I, we're going to be going to the other paradise in about a month. We're going to Arkansas. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, by the way, if you're new in our church, okay, when I write things on the board, we all know that I have a creative way of spelling because I grew up in Arkansas, all right? We are number 49 in education, having beat out Mississippi. Where are you, Matt? We beat out Mississippi. That's fantastic. All right, so let's, let's talk for a moment. I want to hear from you. Uh, I want to hear different ones of you from your groups. Ellie, I saw your hand up first. What's the mission of the family? A, a strong bond in what? Okay, okay. So uh, a, a, a fortress, uh, a, a bond um, to, to stand on. Okay, fantastic. All right. Somebody else. What is the mission of the family? Jim. Okay. Okay. So godly offspring. All right. Uh, Carrie. Glorify God and build his kingdom. 
right. And then I saw another hand over here. Kathy. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Promote family legacy. All right. Fantastic. All right. Somebody else. Okay. Okay. So uh, a safe place uh, to teach love and forgiveness. These are great. Maybe y'all should do the series. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. I was just thinking about this whole idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is so huge in our lives. I mean, you will not, we will not be a healthy church if we don't know how to forgive each other. You will not have a healthy marriage if you don't know how to forgive each other. You won't have a healthy family. And, and the truth is, and, and I think sometimes we think forgiveness lets the other person off the hook. Actually, it lets us off the hook, is that it lets me off the hook of bitterness. If I don't forgive, I become bitter. I become resentful. But when I forgive, I get to let go of that. And then I let God. I was thinking about this today. It was just, you know, I was thinking about how that, you know, I have to learn to trust that what maybe another person intended for evil, God intended for good. And uh, but, yeah, that's a good one. Someone else. What, what's the mission of the family? Brandon? Okay, okay. So trusting God in everything we do. All right. Okay, maybe one more. One more. Anybody? Okay, say again. I missed the first part of that. Okay, so teaching our children and grandchildren, uh, and and I I, I really appreciate um, that you mentioned grandchildren. Um, teaching our children and grandchildren. Um, basically, what I heard you say was to how to. Uh, I don't remember what, exactly what you said, but how to thrive, that, I'll just throw that word in, on their own, okay? And uh, that hopefully I'm being mostly true to what I heard you state. But, but I, I appreciate that because I think sometimes we think that once our children are grown and gone, then we feel like we don't have as much of a role in their lives. And I really don't think that's what we see reflected in the Scripture, and I don't think it's really true in life. Um, yesterday, and I think I may reference this a little later in the message, my son Caleb, who he's grown and gone, all right? Uh, but he came home yesterday, and uh, we, were, we were driving up to the airport to, together at Sacramento, and we were just talking about things, different things in life. And uh, we talked about, we, we, just, we were just talking. And my son still needs me to speak into his life. Now, my son has learned how to think for himself, He's following Jesus. He's doing really well in, in, in pretty much every area of his life. Okay, and uh, but but you know it, it you know there's still that there's still that interaction. There's still that stuff that's going on. It's very different from when he was four, from 24. But still, it's just going on. It, it's continuing today. Well, let's talk about. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about the mission of the family. One of our favorite movies when our kids were growing up was Spy Kids. Anybody ever see Spy Kids? All right. Okay, so a few of you have seen Spy Kids. The rest of you get some culture, all right? 
Spy Kids, Spy Kids. Gregorio and Ingrid, that's the mom and dad, okay? Gregorio and Ingrid were the two greatest secret agents the world had ever known. They were. They were amazing. They were masters of disguise. You know, they were uh, experts of invention, able to stop wars before they even started. They were that good. Uh, They worked for separate countries, uh, and they were each sent to eliminate their most dangerous enemy, one another. Uh, but in an exotic corner of the world, when they finally uh, came, uh, finally came face to face, they fell in love instead. Of course, uh, it's a movie, all right. They fell in love in, 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 instead, and they embarked on the most dangerous mission they had ever faced: raising a family. Raising a family. Nine years later, they were both retired, having uh, exchanged the adventure of espionage for the even greater uh, adventure of parenthood. But then Gregorio and, and Ingrid are called back into action. Their former colleagues, the world's most impressive spies, they, they start disappearing one by one, and the Cortezes are forced to take on Techno Wizard. Anybody know his name? Vegan Floop. Vegan Floop. All right. Man, I mean, he's, he was an evil guy. All right. Played with kids' toys and stuff. But, you know, he was just an evil guy. And, um, but then the unthinkable happens. They disappear too. And nobody can help them. Nobody can help them except their kids, Carmen and Junie. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fun movie. It is. It's fun for the kids. It's the kind of movie that, you know, the kids watch again and again and again. It's fun the first time you watch it. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's fun. It's just kind of a, a fun little movie. It's filled with adventure. And, but there's, there's a, 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 a there's this one phrase at the very end. Of, there's a couple of phrases by the little girl who plays Carmen. It's great. It's really funny. She said, my, my parents can't be spies. They're not cool enough. Uh, but the, uh, the, the other, uh, the, the other quote that I remember from her, which is great. She says, she said at the very end of the movie, she says, spy work, that's easy. Spy work, that's easy. Keeping a family together, that's difficult. And that's a mission worth fighting for. You hear that? That's a mission worth fighting for. Keeping the family together. You know, what I want to do today is, yeah, yeah, the mission of keeping our families together is important, and it is difficult, and it is dangerous in our world today. But we also need to understand not just the, the mission of keeping our families together. We actually need to understand what the mission of the family is. And the way I want to do that is I want to look and I want to kind of explore with you a text of Scripture, Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 8. We won't read the entire chapter because it's 72 verses. All right, and I'm just not that good at, at reading poetry. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at Ch- Psalm chapter 78, and we're going to look at the first eight verses. And just a, a quick comment here about Hebrew poetry is one of the things that you see a lot, if you've read through the Psalms very much, you, 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 may, not, uh, you may not know this, or you may not readily um, know this, but you may understand it just from having read it yourself, is one of the things that's really prominent in Hebrew poetry is a lot of parallelism. And so what, what, what they'll do, the psalmist will write a thought, 
But then he'll write the exact same thought again, but using different words. And the reason that he's doing this is kind of reinforcing an idea. But this is an important aspect. And that's the reason sometimes when you're reading through the Psalms, you feel like there's repetition. And there's repetition because there's repetition. Because what, what the psalmist is trying to do is he's trying to, to help you really grasp and cement these ideas into your mind and into your heart. The, the guy who wrote this particular psalm is a guy named uh, uh, Asaph, if you're from Arkansas, okay? Uh, but if you listen to the pronunciation guide in Logos Bible Software, it's Asaph, okay? Uh, so, uh, so if I call him Asaph, that's because I'm from Arkansas. But uh, what Asaph says... What Asaph says is, is he, he writes this in, in Asaph or Asaph. What he was is he was kind of like a worship leader for the nation of Israel. He was under King David, and he actually wrote, I, you know what, I looked, but I forgot how many, but probably 10, 15 Psalms are written uh, in the book of Psalms by him. But what he says is this. He says, my people, hear my teaching. Hear my teaching. Listen Listen to the words of my mouth. You see the parallelism there? Hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Things we have heard and known. Things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide These things that we learn from our ancestors, we will not hide them from their descendants, meaning our children, our grandchildren. Okay, I will. Verse two. Let me go back to this again. Verse two. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation. What are we going to tell them? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power. And the wonders he has done. He he decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. He he commanded them to do this. Why? Verse 6. So that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They will not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God and whose spirits were not faithful to him. This morning, um, what God wants us to do is he wants us to, to trust in him. He wants us to remember his mighty works and he wants us to obey him in all things. But he also wants us to pass this on to our children and our grandchildren. There are three big takeaways in this text I want to share with you today. Three, three takeaways that I think are really important. And three things that, that I think you want to walk away with here today. And the first one is simply this. The first one is that we need to diligently study the Scriptures. We need to diligently study the Scriptures and apply the lessons of earlier generations. Uh, you know, it's been said, it's been said that... that uh, those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. You've heard that saying before? Those who do not learn from the past. And, and the thing is, is that we see this in the nation of Israel. It's really fascinating when you read through Psalm chapter 78. Because the first eight verses are kind of the positive verses. The next 64 verses are the painful, painful uh, generation after generation failure 
of not learning from the previous generation. That, that, that what they did is they, they weren't learning. They were, they, they were not learning the, they were not learning uh, the lessons of earlier generations. That, that what God wants for us is He wants us to, to diligently study the scriptures and apply the lessons of earlier generations. Where do I see this in the text? Verse 1. Asaph says, My people hear, take heed to, carefully attend to my teaching. Listen, listen, pay attention to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. So what we need to do is we need to study the scriptures to learn the lessons of previous generations. Uh, We need to do that. Why do we need to do it? Why do we need to do that? So that we don't have to relive the painful lessons of the past the previous generations uh, didn't learn. Uh, that it, what happened for the nation of Israel is that it, it, it's really kind of crazy. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever known someone who said this, or maybe you've said it yourself. You know, if I could see a miracle, it'd be easy for me to believe in God. Okay? I don't know if you've ever said that. Yourself. I've said that. You know, if I could see a miracle, it'd be easy for me to believe in God. If I... Um, you know, if I saw some, God do something really fantastic, it'd be easy, easier for me uh, to believe in him and to trust him and to obey him. Okay? The nation of Israel, they saw God do fantastic things. They saw God uh, do these, these things in, in Egypt where, where God brought them out of Egypt. They brought these plagues on the nation of Egypt, but he protected them. He brought the plagues on Egypt, but he protected them. He brought plague after plague after plague after plague, and he protected his people, protected his people, protected his people. Finally, he brings them out through the Red Sea and destroys the armies of Egypt. And then he gives them water in the desert. But you know what the people of Israel do? They complain. They complain. Oh, we got water, but we don't have any bread. So God gives them bread. And, and what do they do? They're really grateful and thankful and celebrate it. No, 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 no. What do they do? They complain. Oh, he, he gave us water. He gave us bread. But what about the meat? See, see, there was never enough that God could do. Now, I'd like to say, I'd like to say, I've learned that lesson. You know, I, I you know, just kind of going back, going back a few years. I remember we, when we, the church was coming through the recession. Well, not the church, the country. Okay, the country. If you didn't know this, a few years ago, the the, the country went through a recession. All right, which means that things were miserably economically. By the way, when things get miserably economically, churches feel it in a big way. Okay, it dries up the giving. It does. And I remember we were at a place as a church where we were one week away from extinction financially. I mean, we had exhausted all of our reserves. And, and when you are a husband and a dad, and you don't know how you're going to supply food and, a, and, and pay the mortgage for your family, that feels stressful. And when you're a pastor and you're like, I don't know what we're going to do, that feels stressful. So I was really stressed. And on that Sunday, and you've heard this story before, but it's a story worth retelling because we got to tell ourselves the same stories again and again. 
We've got to tell our stories, the, the same stories again and again because it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. And it was a Sunday morning, and I was preaching through, I was preaching through the Lord's Prayer, and I was going to preach on, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread, praying for God's provision today, what we need today. Matt walks through those doors. On the floor, by that mail slot, there's an envelope. And the name on it was one of the tight ends for the San Francisco 49ers. And in that envelope was a check for $10,000 that paid our mortgage that month. And I've been a 49ers fan ever since. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys, he cares about those guys. Hey, you know, it. it um, but, you know, you, the funny thing is, guess what? You, you would say, now, Gary, shouldn't trusting God be easy? I still get stressed. I do. I still get stressed. You know, I was, yeah, I, but I have, you know, I don't want to go into another story that I've already told you before. But, but you know, we, we came through a couple of really big medical crises. Is that the plural for crisis, I think? Crises. Kathy's not, so I know I'm right. So she's the college professor. I'll always look to you, all right? Uh, but but with, with, you know, we had come through a couple of major medical crises, and I, I remember we were coming through it, and I was just overwhelmed because our bills were huge. I had never seen bills this big since we bought our house. And I was like, God, I don't know how we're going to do this. I mean, I just don't know how we're going to pay these bills. And I remember, I was in, and keep my older kids in college, I don't know how to do this. And I remember it was a Tuesday, and I was on the floor and, and praying, you know, before God. And I just said, God, help me. And on that Thursday, my son Caleb got a grant for $5,000 for school that year. Yeah, praise God is right. And the following Monday... Following Monday, when we were getting ready to pay our bills, I pull out the bill from Kaiser. I pull it out, and I looked, and I thought, oh, my goodness, look at the bill. I think somebody made a mistake. This has got to be wrong. And, and, and so I call up, you know, Kaiser to say, hey, I, I think there's a mistake on our bill because the bill is a lot smaller than it used to be. And, and the woman said, oh, you're right, there is a mistake. And I expected her to say, this is how much you owe. But this is what she said. Uh, she said, actually, you don't owe this amount either. Talking about another part of the bill. And by the way, you don't owe this amount either. And by the way, seriously, this is what she said. She, she went from one part to another part. And then she said, oh, by the way, we're going to have to send you a check because it looks like you guys have overpaid. Hey, that is God. That is God. I mean, we had applied for a hardship with Kaiser, but we were told, you know, you'll hear from us in about 45 to 90 days. It was a week. It was a, a week. And God provided. And, and, and why am I saying this? Uh, well, we need to diligently study the scriptures and apply, um, uh, apply the lessons of earlier generations. Is that, that when we don't learn from what God has done in the past, we tend to relive that same stuff again and again. Me, I've got to constantly remind myself of God's faithfulness. I've got to constantly do that. Um, number two, second, second principle, second takeaway from this text is this. 
Okay? God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to remember His mighty works. He wants us to obey Him on all things. Number two, we need to pass on these teachings to the next generation. We do. We've got to pass it on. And what the Scripture says, verse 4, it says, We will not hide these things, the principles we have learned from previous generations. We will not hide them, verse 4 it says, We will not hide them from their descendants, our children, our grandchildren, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. The wonderful things that He has done. He, the Lord, decreed statutes, commands to obey. He decreed statutes for Jacob, the nation of Israel, and established the law, the Torah, established the the law in Israel, which He commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that The next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. And so what we need to do is we need to pass on these teachings to the next generation. We need to be careful that we don't drop the ball, that we we make a clean handoff to that next generation. That it is the responsibility of every generation to instruct and encourage the next generation about the praiseworthy deeds of God and the teachings of the Scriptures. Now, I want to talk to you about this for a moment. The truth is, a lot of times in families, we have a tendency to pass on not always a good legacy, but sometimes a bad legacy. Okay? We, we see this. Now, now, one of the things that I want you to understand is when you read the Bible... The Bible is not a collection of hero stories. It's not. It's not that. It's a salvation story. And so what happens is sometimes we begin to look towards people like Abraham as a hero. Abraham's not a hero. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible isn't that Abraham is a hero. The story of the Bible is that God is Abraham's hero. The the teaching of the Bible isn't that Isaac was a hero. Isaac wasn't a hero. The teaching of the Bible is that God was Isaac's hero. The teaching of the Bible is not that Jacob was a hero. The teaching of the Bible is that God was Jacob's hero. So what was Abraham then if he's not a hero? He was a liar. He was a liar who pimped out his wife. Pimped out his wife to Pharaoh. And got rich doing it. But God was faithful and God protected Abraham. See, that's the hero. God protects Abraham even though Abraham doesn't deserve it. Abraham was a liar. He did it again with Abimelech. By the way, what does Isaac do? He learns from his dad, right? He learns from his dad not to be a liar, right? Oh, no, wait a second. He turns around and lies to Abimelech. Abimelech was a name, not a name, a title, similar to, um, similar to Pharaoh. Abimelech means son of the king, all right? Excuse me. Father of kings? I don't know. Anyway, it means something. It's, but basically it's a title, kind of like Pharaoh, okay? Kind of like Caesar, okay? Caesar wasn't a name, it was a title. And, and, so, so, and, and so this other Abimelech, Isaac, deceives him. And so what does Jacob do? He learns the lessons, learns not to be a liar from his grandfather and his father, right? No. Jacob becomes a deceiver too. By the way, his name, Jacob, means hill, 
uh, means supplanter or heel grabber, basically means liar. Okay? And, and, and what does Jacob do? He deceives his brother Esau, stealing the birthright, and then he deceives his uncle Laban, taking all of his possessions. That, that what we see is we see a legacy passed on from generation to generation to generation of unhealthiness. Does that happen in our world today? Heck yeah. A lot of times addiction runs in our families. A lot of times anger runs in our families. A lot of times materialism runs in our families. A lot of times dysfunction of every kind runs in our families. And what God is telling us is we need to pass on something better. We need to pass on something better. And the better that we need to pass on to our children, rather than, you know, alcohol or anger or codependency or materialism or insecurity, whatever it is, is that we need to pass on something better. We need to pass on the teachings of the Bible, the mighty deeds that God has done to the next generation. Third, third takeaway from this text is this. Third text uh, takeaway is, is this, is that our mission as parents is to teach our children to trust God, to remember his works, and to obey his commands. Do you, do you get this? There are three things here, okay? The, the first is to trust God. Trust God. Secondly, uh, to uh, remember his works. Third, to obey his commands. Now, where do I see this? And I want to back up to verse 5 again, okay? The Lord decreed statutes for Jacob and established a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so that, verse 6, so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, verse 7, then they, your children and your grandchildren then they would put their trust in God. See, that's what God wants us to teach our children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds. You remember how I was talking to you about sometimes I forget that God is faithful, and so I get anxious, and I forget that God is faithful, and I get anxious? But guess what? God keeps showing up. Why? Because I'm not the hero of my story. God is. And he keeps showing up. And what we want to do is we want to teach our children to trust in God and, and to remember his works and to obey his uh, commands. Verse, verse 7, then they would put their trust in God, would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands, obey his word. What's the mission of the family? The, the mission of the family is to train up a generation who will put their trust in God, who will not forget his deeds, who will keep his commands. The theological vision of Asaph or Asaph was, was simply that each generation would pass on to the next generation, to the next generation, from now until eternity dawns, every generation passing on to the ne- next generation, a faith worth living. Or let me say it a little bit differently. Let me say it a little bit differently. Let me say this a little bit differently, and then I want to, I want to show you a video clip that, that I think will help make this point maybe a more lasting thought for you. Um, my, uh, sorry, not yet. Um, so uh, in, in, my, um, in my family, people a lot of times will refer to joy and to, excuse me, refer to, to, to Cass and the faith as being mini-me's, looking like their mom. 
and I'm so grateful they look like their mom because they, they could have looked like me, all right? But they will, they will talk about how my daughters look like uh, their mom. And to me, that's delightful. Uh, I love my daughters, and I love the way they look. And I love that they reflect the beauty of my wife. That's something that's special to me. But what God has called us to do is not to raise children who look like us. What God has called us to do is to raise children who look like Jesus. Uh, Children who look like Jesus. People who are learning to trust God. People who are... People who are remembering what God has done, people who are obeying God, learning to obey God in all things. Now, before we show the clip, I want to set this up for you. I want you to imagine four men, and you're going to see this in a moment, but I want you to imagine four men running a race together. I I love the 4 by 400 I don't know how many of y'all like to go to track meets. I I, I do. My favorite event always is the 4 by 400 Uh, And when Caleb was running track at Armio, occasionally he would run one of the legs in the 4 by 400 there. But but for me, it's always one of my favorite events. I, I love it. It's just filled with so much drama. And what happens is that every man in the race has to run his leg, and he has to run it. Uh, you know, what it takes to run 400 meters is it, it does take speed. It does. But it takes more than speed. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of courage. It does. It, just, it takes a lot more from you than running 100 or running 200. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those aren't difficult difficult. Uh, events. I'm just saying that a lot of that, just a person's gifted with speed. But in the 400, you have to be gifted with speed, but you have to have more. You have to have guts. You have to have courage. And in the 4 by 400, you have to have four men who have uh, that speed, those guts, and that courage. And what happens is that each man runs his leg to the best of his ability, and then it is his responsibility to make sure the baton makes it into the, the next man next man's hand. And if he doesn't get that baton into the next man's hand in in the lane, in the uh, exchange lane where it's supposed to happen, you're disqualified. Okay? You're disqualified. And, and, and a lot of times, the team that wins isn't always the fastest team. A lot of times, the team that wins is the team that makes the cleanest exchange. But what I want you to... to and, and I believe that family... Teaching one generation to the next to the next is a lot like that. But what I want to do is I want you to watch this video, and I want you to watch it closely, especially between the third and the fourth man. And then I want to be able to come back, and I want to talk to you about this a little bit more because I feel like I need to do this. Let's, let's go ahead and show that. Final event of the 1985 World Cup, the men's 4 by 400 meters relay. And it begins with the United States of America in an apparently unassailable lead and with a very, very hot spot indeed in this race. Walter McCoy leads the uh, quartet that are threatening to do something very special in this race. United States in lane 7, East Germany on their outside in the blue top in lane 8, the USSR in lane 2 and a very strong African squad on the inside lane. Remember, they run this first leg and then the first bend of the second leg in lanes. Walter McCoy it is, though, bringing United States through this first leg safely. He'll hand on to Ray Armstead. And the point situation is such that the United States lead by four points. So really, the Soviet Union have to finish five places ahead of them in this race to overhaul them and win the World Cup for men. A magnificent opening leg for Walter McCoy. I timed him in 45 seconds exactly. 
So now as the stagger sorts itself out and they break into that inside lane, we can see the margin of the United States lead. Rowe, it is, running the second leg. Oceania chasing home in second place at the moment and they've got Darren Clark to come on their anchor leg. The Africans challenging the Soviet Union for third place. But the United States have a lead. It's been a fine run by Oceania. They're a surprise second place as they take off for the third leg. Yes, Mark Rowe's been injured and so was a last-minute change this team. But even so, he ran a 45-4 leg. So it's Armstead who runs the third leg then for the United States as the Soviet uh, athlete picks himself up off the ground. And certainly the surprise packet in this race is the Oceania team running well above expectations. Otherland it is, will hand on to Darren Clark. But the United States are only concerned about staying that four places ahead of the Soviet Union, which would be enough to win them in the match. And as you can see at the moment, they are all of that. And so, to the final leg. And Mike, oh, and a terrible confusion there. And Mike Franks takes over the baton, but has lost vital ground. And Armstead seems to be pushed and has fallen onto the infield. And the baton changeover may even have been illegal if it took place inside the track. Yes, Armstead went right into the infield several paces and was pushed out there. And uh, th whether that gets a disqualification or not will be vitally important to see later. Well, that could be sensational because in 1977 in Dusseldorf, the United States lost to East Germany on this final event and they had a full muscle. Mike Franks coming through now, the crowd booing in response to that earlier incident. What a controversy, what a finish to this World Cup as the Africans are pushing back. But look at Franks, what a fantastic effort by Franks. Unbelievable run, unbelievable by Franks. The time, a shade over three minutes. And Franks' final leg was quite astonishing because he must have been 30 to 40 metres down on the African into the home straight. But this is the incident that matters. Well, that was a phenomenal run by Franks. But let's pick up the incident here. The real villain was the Russian, the last runner on the, for the Russians, Krylov, who at the bottom of the screen there is moving through into second place. He's got no right to be there because his incoming runner is in about fourth or fifth place. Darren Clark pushes him. The Russian then falls on top of Armstead, who still hasn't reached the line. Mike Franks has taken off. He's suddenly got no bat, no man to give it to him. He's waiting there desperately trying to get hold of it. Egbenikis come round here as Franks tries to run away. He gets spiked by the Russian again. Darren Clark's in second. That's a, one of the most extraordinary incidents. The American team are now down with our camera and with Jim looking at that incident again. Now look at this, watch this. Boom! What's that? What's that? I wanted you to toss it to me. You know that, don't you? Yeah, I know. We got disqualified. <laughs> then you got, he pulled your leg right there. The rest <laughs> no, I got spiked. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, he spiked me. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Now watch this. Watch the finish. Watch the finish. Look at the finish. Look at the finish. Look at this, Look at this, man. Look at the finish. Look at the finish. Look at the finish. Look at this, man. Look at the finish. Look at this, Tremendous. Look at this, Tremendous. He's not coming. He moved back. He looked like I told you he got him. Well, the Americans justifiably angry, but the incidents hadn't finished yet. Egbeniki in the orange vest in the centre, striding away for home. 
look at Franks coming up on his outside and then as that right hand goes back with the baton Franks is going to catch it with his left arm. There it goes, the baton falls to the ground and Ekbeniki looks across and says, you take my baton, finishes with not a baton in his hand. An amazing race and there were protests galore afterwards. At first the USSR disqualified, then that decision was reversed and the luckless Africans lost their second place behind the USA. You know, I, I love that video. I love the race. I love the race. I, I laugh every time I watch and listen to the guys talking about it afterwards. There are a group of guys who are excited, not just that they won, but how they won the race. And it's pretty spectacular. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, the family, uh, the, the reason the men in that video won the race is not just because they were fast. They, I mean, they're undeniably the, the fastest team in the world. You know, at that time, now it's the Jamaicans. But at, at that time, it was they were undeniably the fastest team in the world. The, the, the difference was they refused to quit when they went through adversity. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It is very important that you run your leg well. It's very important that you run your leg well. It's also very, very important that you do not quit in adversity. Very, very important. Very, very, very important that you do not quit in adversity. When that man, the man running the third leg of the race for the Americans, when that man got shoved off the track, he didn't just lay there on the ground. That's not fair. That I got pushed. I got pushed. If he had done that, you know what would have happened? They would have lost the race, but they wouldn't have just lost the race. They would have lost the entire meet. See, they had to finish that race, and they had to finish in the top four, not just to win the race. They had to finish in the top four to win the meet. But if he had stayed on the ground and not got back up, it's really, I've watched this video several times, and it just, it, to me, I just get gripped with emotion. Uh, because to me, it's, it, it's, whatever, it illustrates what I think God wants from us. That man, he gets up and he passes on the baton. I don't know if you watched it and saw it, but afterward, he collapses on the infield. I mean, this guy had just run 400 meters and just got hit hard in the solar plexus. But he has the courage, he has the guts to get back up and hand off the baton. And then the man, the last man, Running, I can't remember his name. I forgot their names. I wrote it down somewhere. But, but the last man running, you know, he could have said, oh, I'm hopelessly behind. I'm ho hopelessly behind. And just kind of jogged in. He could have done that. And, and folks, people do this every day of their lives. People do this every day of their lives. Oh, I'm hopelessly behind. I'm hopelessly behind. I can't catch up. There's no sense in trying, you know. And, 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 but he refuses to give up. He refuses to quit. I'm not sure about swiping the baton of the other guy's hand. I'm not sure if that's in the rules or not. But, you know, what he did was he raced and he ran courageously. He ran with guts and he did not leave anything out. This is what our families need. They need to pass on to the next generation. We need to pass on this faith in God, this knowledge of the works that he has done, this, this uh, obedience to God. 
and, and this is what this is what you have got to hear. This is crucial today. Some of you have fallen. Some of you have fallen. You have fallen. You have failed. You have fallen. You have failed. But you are not a failure. You. You are not a failure. If you get back up. You hear what I'm saying? You have fallen. But you're not a failure if you get back up. Some of you, you, you've muffed the exchange. You've muffed it. You failed. But you're not a failure if you get back up and make the exchange. Some of you think it's hopeless. You think it's hopeless. It's done. I've lost the race. You haven't lost if you keep running and you run as hard as you can. You haven't lost. Now, I'm going to tell you where it is so important to hear this message. If you're a man, please stand up. If you are a man, please stand up. I'm asking you to stand up because every, every man in this room, your children need you to stand up. They need you to take a stand. I watched this video Friday morning. Not the video you watched. I watched a different video. I don't watch videos in the mornings when I get up out of bed. But my wife wasn't there. I started toying with my phone, and I just I don't toy with my phone in the mornings, and I don't toy with phone with apps that I've never that I don't know anything about. But I turned it on this app called iTunes U, and it has all these college classes you can take, like from Stanford and Harvard and stuff like that. And I just looked at Dallas Seminary, just curious, and I watched a video of one of my old profs, Howard Hendricks, and I've heard Howard Hendricks say this on on other occasions, on other occasions. And, and what Hendricks said is this. He says, the greatest problem in the home and in the church today is the passive male. Did you hear that? There's a reason why I asked you to stand today. The greatest problem in the home and in the church today, this is according to Howard Hendricks, and I kind of agree with him. The greatest problem in the home and the church today is the passive male. Now, our homes and our churches need strong female leadership. But let me tell you, our homes and our churches need strong male leadership. In fact, in fact, it's really interesting because Hendricks says this. Hendricks says about 80%, according to a survey by Christianity Today, and they're pretty good at what they do. According to a survey by Christianity Today, about 80% of churches are in a boat similar to our church, Solana Valley. 80% are either plateaued in their growth or they're declining. And this is what, what Hendricks says. I believe the reason for that is male passivity. He said men, and he, he, he talked about some of the women at, at, at Dallas Seminary where I went to school. He says, it drives them crazy when you do not lead. When you do not lead. And what our families need and what our church needs is men who win. Men who refuse to give up. He talks about how many of these men, they lead in their career field, they lead in their workspace, but they don't lead in the home and they don't lead in the church. 
And guys, I just think our families deserve better and our church, the church of Jesus Christ, deserves better. Now, many of you guys, you are leading in home. You are. And many of you guys are leading in our church. You are. And, and the reason that I'm asking you to take a stand is because what I want you to do is I want you to take a stand today and every day for the rest of your life. There are going to be times where you're going to get, get knocked down. That's okay. That's okay. As long as you get back up. There are going to be times when you feel like you are hopelessly behind. There are going to be times where you feel like you're hopelessly behind. That is okay. That's okay. I want you to keep running the race. I want you to keep running the race because your family needs you to run, needs you to get up, uh, and needs you to be a leader. And we're not talking about leading. I'm not talking about being the, you know, the. I'm not talking about the kind of selfish, self-centered. Um, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about the kind of leadership that we see in the person of Jesus. I'm talking about leading by serving. I'm talking about leading, and I'm talking about following Jesus in a way that your wife your children, and other people around you want to follow Jesus too. That's what I'm talking about. All it takes to learn how to lead is to follow Jesus. That's all. And what I want to do is, and we're going to pray. You guys, you can sit down. Thanks for standing up. Um, I, as I was thinking about and praying about this and preparing, I felt like that God was saying, Gary, if you preach this message... And then tell everybody, I'll see you next Sunday. I'm going to take you to a whipping shed. Um, not like that. But I kind of felt like, Gary, if you share this message, and then you just walk away and say, see you next week, then I feel like you're the one who's lying down. You're the one who's dropped the baton. You're the one who's not manning up. And so what I want to do is for any man who is available and who is interested is next Thursday, I would just like to have a men's huddle next Thursday, 6 p.m. I'm not going to ask you to make a commitment for the rest of your life. I'm just going to ask you to meet with me one time. That's all I'm going to do. Then I'll ask you to meet with me more. But I want to ask you to meet with me, and I want us to talk about What does it mean to be men who win? What does it mean to get up when we've been knocked down? What does it mean to run when we feel like we're hopelessly behind? What does it look like to finish the race, finish the course in a way that's honoring to God and inspiring to our wives and our children? Does that make sense? And... uh, you know, I, I know that not everybody has the same work schedule, so whatever time I pick, it's going to be a problem for someone else. Uh, and if for some reason that does not work for you, we can talk about meeting another time. But right now, I just want to put that out there for any man who is available. I would love for us to get together just to talk, share a little bit, and pray together. That's all. That's all. So I don't know how to finish this, so uh, let's pray, and I'll turn it back over to the worship team. God, today, what we want to do is we, um, 
We don't want to try to be the hero in our stories. And if that's come through in my message, God, please forgive me. But we don't want to try to be the hero of our stories. We don't want to be um, a mighty fortress. We don't want to be a strong tower. God, we want you. We want you. We want you to be our mighty fortress. We want you to be our strong tower. God, we don't want to we don't want to try to be the hero of our story. God, we want you to be the hero of our story. But God, we want to run the race that you have given us, and we want to run it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We, we want to be an example of what it looks like to trust in you. We want to be an example of what it looks like to continually call to remembrance your mighty deeds. And we want to be an example of what it looks like to learn how to obey you in all things. God, we want to faithfully live the mission of the family. And we want to do this... Uh, for our children, for our grandchildren, and we want to do this for the honor, the glory of your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.